Welcome again to Prairie View. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Well, this morning we will start a new sermon series looking at some of the unsung heroes of Scripture. And when we talk about unsung heroes, we're not necessarily talking about just individual people. Though today we will discuss the prophet Hosea. We're also talking about the oft-neglected theme of grieving and pain. We'll see that next week from the book of Lamentations. On August 27th, we'll look at two books of the Bible that are commonly ignored. We spend time in 1st John, but we kind of neglect 2nd and 3rd John. So you might say that these unsung heroes of the Bible are like old books sitting on your shelf. You know they're on the shelf for a reason. At some point, they were important enough to earn a place there. And yet, for some time now, they've served more as paperweights or decoration. And they've seen more dust and cobwebs than curious eyes. So this morning, our unsung hero is Hosea, a prophet of God's people in the Old Testament. And if you ever read the Old Testament, you'll discover that being a prophet was not exactly an easy task. When we think about a prophet, we may think of someone who knows how to predict the future. We like to think more of the sensational prophetic books of Scripture, books like Daniel and Revelation. We often view a prophet as someone who gives us a riddle that we have to decode in order to find out the answer to some vast, controversial mystery. But to be honest, that's not really the biggest job of a prophet in the Old Testament. An Old Testament prophet spent less time predicting the future and more time reminding the people of God who exactly God is and reminding them of who God calls them to be. So a prophet was not a fortune teller or a psychic. At the most basic level, a prophet was a spokesman for God. And the messages that God gave his prophets weren't always easy to hear for God's people. Most of the time, a prophet's message was calling out the people for their sin. And as a result, the Old Testament prophet was usually ignored or maligned or rejected. When you think about it, in a way, you didn't really have as much need for a prophet if God's people would have been following God to begin with. So you could say that the Old Testament prophet is kind of the textbook unsung hero of Scripture. Someone neglected and mocked by men, and yet faithful to God, and useful to God. So what exactly was Hosea's message? What message did God give Hosea to share with the Israelites? And how does this message of a prophet almost 3,000 years ago translate to us as believers in Jesus today? And how will we respond to this message Will we be like the prophet's typical audience, rebellious, hardened, offended that someone would dare call out our sin? Or will we have ears to hear, eyes to see, and will we thank God for the grace he has shown us in sending us a prophet in the first place? So open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Again, Hosea is not often turned to, so if you find Isaiah and you find Jeremiah, and you find Ezekiel, Hosea should be shortly after. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. 
But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for your word, every single bit of it, that teaches us and guides us and encourages and challenges and convicts all the things that your word does. Thank you that we are not opening just another book. Uh, We are not opening another historical document. Uh, We are opening the word of God that is inspired by your spirit. And Father, thank you that we can trust that every single time we as believers open your word, that you have something to say to us and that something is valuable. So, Father, help us to hear that this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. As we mentioned just a few moments ago, that his body was broken and his blood was shed to redeem sinners like us. And the book of Hosea shows us in a very different way just how true that is. So, Father, be with us this morning as we read your word, as we worship. I pray this would be honoring to you. I pray that you would be with those of us who aren't here, whether they're people traveling or ill or recovering from surgery, whatever it might be. Father, watch over those people as well. Again, we love you. We thank you. We are honored to have this time together, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the message of Hosea could be summed up as this. God has a bone to pick with the Israelites. And Hosea lays out the case that God has against them. God accuses the Israelites of heinous, unashamed, and consistent wickedness. This was not a case of some good, honest, well-intentioned people who may have just slipped up once and God overreacts. That's not what it is at all. This is a pattern of sin, a pattern of rebellion that was burned into their hearts, minds, and lives. And God, in his holiness and justice, simply can't tolerate it anymore. So he has to speak up. We see it in Hosea chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hosea writes, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The promised land, this place that God gave them to serve as their home, A place where they could serve and worship God freely. A second Garden of Eden, of sorts, has been polluted through their laundry list of sins. It's so polluted that even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are taken away from this land. We see in verses 12 and 13, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. In this place that God has given them, sadly and ironically, 
The Israelites worship everything but God. They worship the things they create. They worship the things they make instead of the God who saved them. He goes on in chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Ephraim, a.k.a. Israel, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. They were meant to be set apart from the surrounding nations, distinct from them. All those nations that don't worship the one true God, the Israelites were supposed to point those people's eyes to the one true God. And yet instead, they've cozied up with their pagan neighbors. And they can't even see how far they've fallen. They're so blinded by their own sin. Verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. When things have gotten bad, they've looked to Egypt for help. And you know, that's kind of a slap in the face to God, especially if you think back to that whole Exodus thing. God freed them from Egypt, and yet they turned to Egypt for safety instead of turning to God. Hosea chapter 10, starting in verse 5, we see there, The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. It's not just the commoners in Israel who are guilty of all this sin. Even the priests, the leaders of God's people, they're in on it as well. And then finally, the icing of the cake, Isaiah, Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The people say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. But then God responds. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. So to top it all off, even when the people do show the slightest signs of turning back to God, it's not genuine repentance. It's from a sense of entitlement, a sense of arrogance. And so God says that their love for him Their so-called repentance is as short-lived as the dew on the grass when the sun comes up. So you put it all together. And do you think God has a strong case against Israel? Is it a case that will hold up in court? Absolutely. After everything we just read, it's safe to say that God has every right to abandon Israel entirely. No one would blame God if he wiped his hands of these people once and for all. He fulfilled his end of the deal. They're the ones who failed to fulfill theirs. And yet, God doesn't abandon them. Instead, he graciously sends a prophet 
named Hosea to warn them. He sends Hosea to call them to repent. Chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And then chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. You know, sometimes we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament in very different ways. We use different terms. We often talk about the Old Testament God as mean and harsh, and the New Testament God as warm and fuzzy. We make it seem as though God is only a God of grace when we get to the New Testament, like we have two different versions of God, like God somehow underwent a makeover between the Old and New Testaments. But if you actually read the Old Testament, you'll find out why that's considered heresy, false teaching, because it's simply not true. We see God's grace all over the Old Testament. We see it in the Garden of Eden when instead of destroying Adam and Eve, then and there, he promises them future deliverance. God's grace is on display when he calls Abraham a perfectly normal guy. To be the father of a great nation that would bless the entire world. God's grace was on display when he saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, even though they whined and complained on the whole trip. And God's grace was on display when he didn't abandon them in those dark days of the judges. God shows his grace time and time again through the pages of scripture. And God shows his grace again here in the book of Hosea. But that being said, I do have to admit that God's grace is shown in this book in a somewhat interesting or unique or maybe unexpected way. And that leads us back to the man himself, Hosea. He's the prophet who will show us in a very real and very personal way just how kind, merciful, and gracious God really, truly is. So for that, look at Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. So God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer. And if you're thinking, now, wait a minute, why doesn't Hosea say, whoa, hold up, God, I am not going to do that. Well, keep in mind that the measure of a good prophet is their obedience to God. So it's not so simple as negotiating with God and convincing him to have Hosea do something else. 
But what about Hosea's reputation? What will people say? I mean, how could a prophet, a man of God, associate himself with someone like her? If Hosea goes through with this, he'll be the laughingstock of Israel. People will either think he's crazy or naive. How could he possibly be so stupid as to think that she would be faithful to him? On top of that, we read this passage, and we might be tempted to wonder, you know, would God really ask Hosea to do something like this? This story has made people uncomfortable for generations. But let's be real. Scripture shows us more than once that God makes difficult requests, difficult commands of his prophets. He submits Jeremiah to terrible persecution and gives him all kinds of seemingly silly tasks to perform just to prove God's point. God commands Ezekiel to lay on his side for 390 days to symbolize the punishment of Jerusalem. So, yes, God does ask prophets and command prophets to do hard things. And then again, that does carry over into the New Testament when Jesus asks his disciples to take up a cross and follow him. Now, from this marriage, Hosea and Gomer have three children And those children become part of God's message for Israel as well. The first child's name means God will scatter. The second child's name means no mercy. And the third child's name means not my people. And all three of those names foreshadow what will soon happen to Israel. So by now, it's safe to say that Hosea has paid his dues as a prophet of God. He's been obedient. He's preached the difficult message God gave him. He married the prostitute God told him to marry. He gave his kids awful names that you know will lead to mocking on the playground. I mean, surely God wouldn't ask any more of Hosea, right? Hasn't he put the man through enough? Well, look at Hosea chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Not really sure what's wrong with that. Raisins are okay. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In a shocking development, Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. And as if God hasn't already put Hosea through enough hardship, he gives Hosea one more command. Go, find your unfaithful wife and redeem her. Buy her back. Restore her honor. Be kind, gracious, and merciful to her, even though she's betrayed you. Poor Hosea. What did he ever do wrong to make God call him to this? Hasn't the poor man suffered enough? Hasn't he been subjected to enough shame already? 
If Hosea was mocked before, how much more so will he be mocked now? He's a fool. Who would possibly spend their hard-earned money to redeem someone like her? Well, this gets at the whole idea of the book. The kindness, mercy, and grace that Hosea shows to Gomer is the same kindness, mercy, and grace that God shows to his sinful people. Now, will there be discipline for Israel in the short term? Yes. But in the long term, there will be far greater redemption. We read in Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Right after we see the names of those kids, God will scatter. No mercy, not my people. Verse 10 says this. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And then chapter 2, verse 16. And that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So do you see what's happening here? A faithful man of God is subjected to suffering and shame for the redemption and reconciliation of an unfaithful sinner. Now, maybe it's just me, but as Christians, it feels like we've heard this story before. It feels like we've heard this story somewhere else in another part of the Bible involving a man named Jesus. Now, of course, back to Hosea and Gomer, it's a touching story. You could almost call it the pretty woman of the Old Testament. But as believers in Jesus, the more we think about this story the closer to home it should hit. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, he associates Israel's sin with Adam's sin back in the Garden of Eden. For readers of the New Testament, that ought to sound familiar, because Paul associates our sin with Adam's sin as well. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, And death through sin, death spread to all men, because all sinned. So maybe you think back to the sins that God listed against Israel. Lying, swearing, murdering, bloodshed, idolatry. And you think to yourself, you know, I maybe have done a couple of those things, but I've never been as bad as they were. 
Or maybe you think back and say, yeah, you know, I've committed some of those sins, but I'm not in that unique covenant relationship with God the way the Israelites were. The context is a little bit different. Not so fast. You still owe God your worship and your obedience by virtue of the fact that he created you, that he gave you life. And let's be honest, our lives aren't exactly shining examples of worship and obedience, are they? While all sins, in a sense, may not be made equal, all sinners are equal. Your sin may not look exactly like theirs, but that doesn't change the fact that you are just as much a sinner as Adam and those Israelites and even Gomer. The truth is that we need a redeemer just as badly as they did. Hosea redeemed Gomer. In another heartwarming Old Testament story, Boaz redeems Ruth. But who redeems us? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The faithful, obedient man of God. In fact, the very Son of God is subjected to suffering and shame to redeem unfaithful sinners like us. So the truth is that you need redemption. I need redemption. Now, you won't hear this talked about much in our day and age. Why not? Well, because acknowledging our need for redemption means admitting that we've fallen short. And no one likes to do that. We'd rather feed our egos and soothe our consciences by telling ourselves that we're just fine the way we are. But it's not true. But God has provided the one Redeemer sufficient for you. Hosea submitted himself to great suffering in obedience to God. He submitted himself to great public shame in marrying Gomer and then redeeming her after her unfaithfulness. But the suffering and shame that Christ submitted himself to on the cross was far greater. Hosea didn't have to die to redeem Gomer. He paid some money and he traded some barley. And while Hosea was a faithful prophet of God, he wasn't the son of God. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ, the son of God, died for us. That's what it costs to redeem us for our unfaithfulness to God. Think back to Hosea and Gomer's children. God will scatter and no mercy, not my people. Because of Christ, we are not scattered. Because of Christ, we are shown mercy. Because of Christ, we are God's people. The world will tell you you don't need a redeemer. Satan will tell you that you're beyond redemption, that your sin is too great, and Christ is not enough. Well, they're both wrong. The bad news of Hosea's prophecy was just how powerful the Israelite sin really was. But the good news of Hosea was that God is in the business of redemption. Both of those things are still true today. Our sin is still powerful. But God is still in the business of redemption. 
And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who died for us on the cross, the one we celebrate every single week at communion, the one who submitted himself to suffering and shame for people like Gomer and for people like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have redeemed us through your son, Jesus Christ. Again, it's a somewhat common message. It's maybe a sermon that people have heard before. It's an idea that we might be familiar with if we've read the pages of the Bible and read some Christian books and maybe explored a little bit of theology. But I pray that we would never lose sight of just how amazing this is. That in spite of our sin, in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our rebellion and betrayal, you love us, you care for us, and you've sent your son to die for us. So, Father, help us to fully understand who we are, redeemed, bought, reconciled by your son's blood. But, Father, help us also to remember who we were and who we would be if not for Christ. We love you, we praise you, we honor you, we thank you for Jesus, and we ask this all in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, and then we'll transition to our closing prayer.